Chapter Two of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two At Breakfast A Feast of Reason and a Flow of Soul. Take another cup of this delicious coffee, Judge, I said to my companion at the table. We were traveling like the gods, and it is fit that we should fare like the gods. Your conceit is a happy one, replied the judge as he inspected his cream. This is the true nectar of Olympus if it was drawn from the udder of a cow. The ancients hid it exactly. Their heaven was only the sublimating of the earth. Their goddesses were their best-looking women, their gods crowned athletes, and their parnassus nothing but an idealized summit of a hill in Attica. We moderns separate our heaven from the earth, and so lose the beautiful sequence of the divine plan. If in the place of theologians we had the old sages again, our children would be taught the sweet lesson that the heavenly is only the earthly in bloom, and that angels are but men and women who have been educated a little higher up than the schooling of this life carries them. And you might add, I suggested, that this manner of travel which we are now enjoying is only a modern method of flying. Certainly, said the judge as he buttered his roll. We are flying. Count the clicks, and he held up his watch. Forty in twenty seconds. That gives us the number of miles to the hour. Fourteen miles an hour and at breakfast. Could an angel keep up her stroke with a cup of coffee in her hand? See, the liquid doesn't sway in the cup. I wonder if the navvies that made this roadbed appreciated their work. The passengers do if they didn't, I responded. And that is the important thing, perhaps. The bee may not know the sweetness of its own honey, nor the mathematical perfection of its cell. But the man gifted with a delicacy of taste and the artistic sense appreciates both. The lower order does the work, and the higher one gives the applause. That seems to be the way of it. At this moment we went roaring over a bridge whose mighty span stretched in majesty a hundred feet above the mad water that poured whirling downward below us. We glanced from the window as the rumbling gave us its signal and our mind received this photographic impression. A mountain to the right, mounded like a loaf, and wooded perfectly from base to dome. To the left a precipice, lifting sheer half a thousand feet from the dark pool lying sullen and black in its shadow. Through this gorge and beyond, in the distance, a space of sky shone like a mirror, and under us, the white angry water, a picture flashed on us in a second and indelibly impressed on the memory a picture which I keep to this day, and shall keep till the gallery in which it hangs with a thousand other perfect ones crumbles to the foundations. The history of bridges is the history of civilization, remarked the judge. Waiter, the steak is a trifle underdone. Tell the cook to give it a brief turn on the iron. The cooking is excellent on this line, he remarked, evidently forgetting what he was going to say about bridges, but it is not up to the level of the Hoffman or of Young's. Not quite up, he continued, as if he would, with fine judicial sense, discriminate the nicety between degrees of excellence in a matter of such supreme importance. One would not expect, Judge, I remarked, to find an old traveller as yourself so particular touching the cooking of a fillet. There's where you mistake, responded the judge. He who travels should be an epicure, for his taste must be cosmopolitan. He becomes acquainted with the fruits and vegetables of every zone, the fish of all seas, and the meats of every country. 
he acquires knowledge not only of the habits but of the beverages of all peoples and of the cuisine of each nation the knowledge of what he should have causes him to insist on his rights and the cook who sends me an underdone steak wrongs me as woefully as a government which would suppress the habeas corpus the equities of the stomach should not be trifled with sir but what about the bridges i inquired laughingly for i must confess i am more interested in your ideas touching bridges than i am touching stakes i am not responsible for your obtuseness and non-discrimination between relative values but bridges are a hobby with me retorted the judge i studied civil engineering before i did law and at that time the great bridges of the world had not been built i can remember when stevenson laid the foundation of his fame with his first bridge and the poetry of his great endeavors impressed me profoundly for a bridge sir is a poem put into structure an imagination of the mind materialized it stands for an idea the idea of human brotherhood and the necessity of friendly exchanges that the man on one side of the river cannot get along without help from the man on the other side who built the first bridge judge inquired the man from new hampshire who built the first bridge it wasn't built replied the judge it was a gift of nature in the form of a tree which the winds overturned so that it stretched its trunk of solid wood from bank to bank of the stream or from edge to edge of the chasm a bridge for the panther and bear as well as for the hunter over the buttresses of which leaves waved and vines twined their foliage and under which the torrent thundered and whirled man never built a bridge so lovely to look upon as those i have seen in the woods wind blown to their places the wind-blown bridge of the forest bravo bravo i exclaimed and i fluttered the napkin gallantly bravo judge the poetry of the theme has found its poet and i passed him a section of a delicious french omelette a reminiscence of paris remarked the judge smiling as he received it more substantial than the pleasures of memory added a new hampshire man quietly and he told the waiter to duplicate the judge's order there is a characteristic among you new hampshire men that i admire remarked the judge you know a good thing when you see it and you see it mighty quick i see an omelette mighty quick when it's as good as yours was the retort the gentlemen are out of order i exclaimed rapping on the table the question before the house is one of bridges bridge number two said the judge is that of the settler two ropes often woven from roots with wooden slats intermediate then comes the bridge with wooden stringers planked for heavier travel then the long enclosed bridge mounting still higher in the rising scale is stevenson's great work the victoria bridge old style now but nevertheless a great achievement in engineering with its monstrous abutments and its thirty acres of painted surface rising still higher we come to the suspension bridge at niagara and the magnificent cantilever structure of this road on which we are riding at lacane and crowning all the great brooklyn bridge over which half a million human beings pass each day i tell you gentlemen exclaimed the judge earnestly the history of bridge building from that wind-blown tree trunk in the woods to the latest achievement in engineering skill is the history of the human race not only in material progress but in the apprehension of man's need of his fellow man and the brotherhood of the race 
Every achievement of man is communal. Every embellishment of this car makes companionship more entertaining and draws us closer together by the bond of common refinement. And the judge proceeded to call our attention with critical appreciation to the carved, the bronzed, and the enameled elegance of the car. That picture reminds me, said the New Hampshire man, pointing to one of the embellishments. A beautiful bit of Japanese enameling. A little bit of personal experience. Waiter, said the judge. Bring us another pot of coffee and a jug of cream. Thank heaven, he ejaculated, that I live to see the day when one railroad management is so intelligent as to recognize the fact that a man who is rich enough to pay ten dollars a day to travel in a palace car is accustomed to have real cream in his coffee. Now, Colonel, he continued, after he poured the rich cream slowly in his cup and then slowly poured the hot, fragrant coffee upon it, I am ready for your story. I hope it will have the flavor of true humor in it, as this coffee has the flavor of real java, and he sipped the delicious beverage with the delicacy of one gifted to enjoy the good things of this world. Oh, it isn't much of a story, replied the colonel pleasantly. Merely a little incident, and he filled his own cup contentedly. It was in 1868 or thereabouts, quietly continued the colonel, when the Orient began to pour the treasures of her art productions via New Jersey into Boston where alone the culture to discriminate between the false and the true in art is to be found, you know, that I was suddenly seized, as were many others, with the Japanese craze. It was a pretty bad attack, he continued reflectively. A pretty bad attack. The papers were full of it. Everybody was talking and writing about Japanese art. Now, when I buy anything, I want it to be first class, something to be proud of, and feeling mistrustful of my own knowledge, I went to one of the leaders in Boston art circles and begged him to give me the benefit of his educated taste. He kindly consented to do so and advised me to allow him to purchase a Japanese screen, as that would be a very beautiful and attractive addition to the furniture of my parlor. I gave him the money which he said would be needed to purchase a first-class article. It was a pretty steep sum for a screen, I thought, but I knew I could not expect to get a real gem without paying for it. Well, the gentleman, after several days of labor, exclusively devoted, as he assured me, to visiting the various eastern bazaars, during which he exhausted the focalizing power of several eyeglasses, succeeded in finding what he was after, a real, genuine, first-class specimen of Japanese art. And the huge screen was sent down to my office, it was certainly a wonderful creation. There was a large-sized Durham cow in the center of the screen, with an almond-eyed milkmaid in a very low-necked dress and high-heeled front shoes milking her. The right eye of the cow was fixed intently on the right-hand corner of the screen, while the left glared straight at you. One eye was considerably larger than the other, and of a different color. I naturally concluded that this was a characteristic of Japanese cows, and mentally made a note of it for use if I should ever be called upon to discuss the peculiarities of Oriental art. I made a memorandum also of the fact that there was only half of the cow's tail in the picture, but as the artist had forgotten to paint in the fly for her to practice at, that did not much matter. To the front and left of the cow sat a gordon setter, about half the size of the cow and twice as tall as the girl. 
The picture affected me so strongly that after I studied it closely, got a photograph of it on my mind, as it were, I quietly shipped it up to my farm in New Hampshire, where I felt there would be room enough for it, and it could add some warmth to the landscape. I hoped also that among my old country neighbors who had never studied high art in Boston, it would find plenty of admirers, be a kind of surprise, so to speak. This would have been all right and safe enough if my housekeeper had been a woman of sense and had acted with any judgment. But while cleaning the house one day, she thoughtlessly set the screen out on the lawn, and a series of terrible results followed. In the first place, a herd of cows that a neighbor was innocently driving along the street caught a glimpse of the cow on the screen and stampeded. The harmless old man was knocked down and seriously injured, while the cows never stopped running till they got to the next township, where they were impounded as vagrants. And that led to a lawsuit which lasted two or three years and impoverished several families. Next, a favorite dog of mine, while chasing a rabbit up the road, saw the Gordon Setter on the screen and dropped dead in his tracks. Then a good, honest, faithful girl who did the milking for the family went out and studied the milkmaid on the screen for several minutes, and going back into the house promptly applied for wages. "'That will do, Colonel,' interrupted the judge, rising. "'That will do for your first one.' And we all started for the smoking-room. End of chapter 2